we have the ability through deeper refinement and uh, more contextual sensitivity to to find, as Lynn says, the cracks in the fissures and the borderlands and these other places where we may not be able to stop the hegemony and totalitarian nature of, of growth-based capital. Today we bring you a conversation between Lynn Murphy and Al Norlada and SAND co-founders Zaya and Maurizio Benazzo entitled Non-Duality and Post-Capitalism here on Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality on the bridge between science and spirituality. If you're ready to explore together, let's dive in. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. My name is Maurizio Benazzo. My name is Zaya Benazzo, and we are located on southern Pomo land in coastal Miwok, so-called Sebastopol, California. And we are so excited to be here today with two really, really good friends, and on top of it, two amazing characters that whose brains are like as beautiful as their faces you can see they're incredible characters and again uh, and good good personal friends so uh, should we introduce them right away and then we talk about them should we do the introduction so in case you, in case you don't know they are so let's start with Alnor Alnor Lada Alnor's work focuses on the intersection of political organizing system thinking structural change and narrative work he was the co-founder and executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others, focused on changing the rules that create inequality, poverty, and climate change. The Rules started in 2012 as a time-bound project, which is really cool, and an experiment in anarchist organizational design, exploring new ways of how to work, play, and make trouble together. That gives you an idea of the character, right? Alnor comes from a Sufi lineage and writes about the crossroads of politics and spirituality in troubled time. He's a co-founder of Tierra Valiente, an alternative community and healing center in the jungle of Northern Costa Rica, which is a gorgeous place, by the way. He's also a board member of Culture Hack Labs and the Emergence Network. He holds an MSc in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics. And as I said before, is an amazing human being, a friend, incredible brain, and fun to be around day to day. So it's such a joy to be here sharing with you, Alnor. Welcome, Alnor. Yeah. Likewise, thank you. And and we have today with us my dear friend and sister Lynn, Lynn Murphy. And she has a pretty incredible background. Uh, she is a strategic advisor for foundations and NGOs working in the geopolitical South. And she was a senior fellow at the program officer at the Hewlett Foundation, where she focused on international education and global development. And I love that part of Lynn that she really uh, walks her realizations and her spiritual path. So once she realized the, the implications of her work, she resigned as a conscientious objector to the new colonial philanthropy. And um, Lynn also is a... Um, uh, movement analyst and a deep thinker and really uh, I see you Lynn as a as a sister that we've shared over the years a lot of our journey together and we have grown and learned from each other so much so yeah. thank you so much yeah. for being here yeah and yeah. Uh, I want to add that we, we lean we have the thing that she's she's my sister from another father and another mother <laughs> 
because we know each other from over 20 years and yeah so family yeah yeah and and when when we heard of your book i mean honestly i felt like okay philanthropy is like this is really a topic i have zero interest in so you send us the book and we love you so we started reading it. I was like, oh my God, this book is really good. I have no idea. I don't care about philanthropy, but this is something is moving here for me. Uh, so uh, I think the book you've created has so many layers and dimensions that invites the reader to be met where, where we are at. So I just wanted to say the book uh, Aonor and Lynn have created, it's really a piece of art, incredible art, incredible graphics that invite us to contemplate on topics that um, are for any human being. Um, that is interested to understand why we are here in this meta crisis and what has led us here. Um, what are the all the pieces that are part of this puzzle? And of course, they don't claim to know it all and to to cover all the pieces. But anyway, it's um, it was very deeply moving uh, experience being and sitting with your book over and over again. So thank you for. Yeah for creating it and offering it. Yeah, because it, it expands, it's not, yeah, it expands, it goes to, to the essence of the crisis we have, tackling yeah. it from that angle. So it's really awesome work. Yeah. So I, I want to start by just reading the your intention in the book, and maybe we can start just speaking about that. So you begin the book by saying, may this text serve the healing of all beings, including the fallen deity of money and its offspring, the shadow and alibi philanthropy. May the colonized mind and body be liberated, including our own. So thank you. Thank you for this prayer. And Maybe you could just say a few words like about the journey, what led you, what inspired you to write this book, this offering. Um, um, Let me start us off, Lynn. Yes. And thank you, Zion, for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and just greetings to all of you. I'm here in a place called Chiripo in Costa Rica. I'm often with El Nor, but I'm at this place and just to invoke it means place of eternal water. And so I greet all of you who are on lands that are thirsty. I'm in a land that sometimes has a little bit too much. And I wanna greet you all and the land and um, yeah, all of those who are here with us today. And maybe that's a way to speak to what is the, what was the inspiration for this book? At some point after I um, kind of resigned from the former work that I had in foundations and went on a whole sojourn to really figure out how to, to be of service in these times and wed that service with what was coming to me in my um, spiritual practice. Uh, I met Elnor some years back, and he was still engaged in the work of the rules at that time. And um, the rules, of course, is that he can say a lot more about this, but as an organization that was working on changing the rules of capitalism, given the NGO industrial complex, it was not an easy one to get funding to support the very work they were doing. And so there were many people saying to him, um, you need to do not just po like political education of funders, but this work of blending the political and the sacred, like this is needed right now. And I was in my own journey of that. And we came in um, to know each other and started doing something. One of the work that the rules did was something that we call the transition resource circle. And it's essentially how do we be with funders and funder activists in this moment? to look at how we use capital, so to speak, to actually build what's gonna come after or come during the collapse and use it in a way that our very consciousness and our gaze and way of approaching is itself part of the prayer and part of the shift. Mm -hmm. And so as we did that work um, and 
spoke to people about this is not just our wealth or any one foundation's wealth or any individual's wealth, but this is the world's collective endowment. We started getting questions about, well, what would post-capitalist philanthropy look like? And we're like, we don't know. <laughs> so it set us on a journey to listen and to talk to many different wisdom holders, um, indigenous elders, people who are looking at, um, you know, degrowth economics to those who are understanding what's coming with our consumption of energy and just a host of people all over the world. And we weren't sure what we were going to do with all of that listening and this like really sitting with what this could be. And it became clear to, to write this, um, and offer this as a book. And, um, Maybe Elmer can speak a little bit more about kind of not just the structure of the book, but what started to come to us to weave together in those lines. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. And and maybe we start with the with the prayer, the dedication that that you invoke, Daya. Um that you know our our entry point into this is seemingly philanthropy, but the, the book is not really about philanthropy at all in, in, in many ways. And um, we sort of sat with the, with the why. Our, I think both Lynn and Lynn, having been a, a former philanthropoid, in her words, not mine, for, for many years, and me as an activist who had spent you know 20 years fundraising, I had a lot of disdain for philanthropy. And uh, I was avoidant, let's say, you know, it's probably the best, the, the best word. And, and yet it just kept on coming that it doesn't matter what issue you're working on, social movements, not-for-profits, all of civil society is funded by philanthropy. It's the upstream. And it's philanthropy is an odd sector because it's so occluded and um, very, very little transparency. It's a very obscure field. But yet it's like $2.2 trillion, right in a 80 billion dollar gdp so it's massive it's the it's the size of a g8 country it's equivalent to canada's gdp and that's just what's known and so we started to realize how powerful this invisible force is and, and how it perpetuates the logic of neoliberalism and late-stage capitalism and, and by neoliberalism you know, we're just referring to this current incarnation this brand of of capitalism and it's it's almost like a, a chapter within late-stage capitalism and that what it's doing is it's both purporting to be the solution to our problems, more money will solve the problems that money has created, without ever acknowledging that it's a symptom that a few people have amassed so much wealth that they're now deciding the agenda of civil society without any public dialogue, without any democratic means or mechanisms. And so it, it really became this entry point into understanding the, the deity of money and the deity of wealth in these times. And so we, we kind of went on what became um, an animistic inquiry into how, how does how did the, the, the sort of living entity of money and wealth and philanthropy play themselves out in these times? And what does it tell us about our current context? And then where shall we go from here? And that's kind of the, the nature of the inquiry in the book. Fascinating, yeah. And I know the social movement, environmental movement, all of, of our efforts to change uh, this paradigm are funded by uh, the very money that go to the heart of the problem, the, the, the capital. So I, I love that you start the book with the paradox of of its you know uh, of the inquiry you know the you're you're trying to liberate something that at its core uh, is against life against the very notion of interconnectedness and oneness and yet um, there we are. There is no any other way. So maybe you can both speak a little bit more about the paradox. And I just want to make the parallel that very often in non-duality, we arrive or we even start even there, the inquiry starts with a paradox, how, you know, how we can ever grasp the immensity of, of life, of the mystery with our little minds and, 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 and yet, that's all we have. So, 
um, yeah, if you can. Elnor, do you want to start with some of the paradoxes? Sure, I can. Um, yeah, so the, the 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 starting place for the book is is these um, uh, eight paradoxes uh, that that in some ways all inquiry starts with these paradoxes, and and just to acknowledge them and 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 situate the the inquiry in that, which is, uh, and I and I won't get into all of them, and and um, I think more importantly, the, the the thing to say is that we're we're not pretending to have any final answers. We're not sort of making recommendations as if this is what must happen with money or philanthropy or, or post-capitalism, but acknowledging that, uh, just take one paradox, for example, like the, the paradox of, of performance, right? That we all play these roles, uh, pretending to be whatever it is, philanthropists, experts, activists, and the very performing of the role limits the expansion of our inquiry. For example, uh, privilege is a constraint right privilege can be a blinding constraint often and so the 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 very means by which we're gazing a situation depends on how we see ourselves in that situation and and then that limits the field of knowledge and so part of our the, the work we're trying to do and not just in the book in 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 a sort of our broader inquiries is uh, how do we become more contextually sensitive in order for us to be more contextually relevant so how do we become more sensitive to the multiple layers of reality, the multiple ontologies, and by ontology, we just mean our way of seeing, perceiving reality and our place within it. it. So how do we become more sensitive to these layers of reality that are happening in order to be more relevant, right? And so if we believe, for example, that the the current metacrisis, uh, and, and you named the, the term metacrisis, which means that all of these sub-crises are, are interlinked and cascading. They're discursive, they're related, they're affecting each other. Climate change is not separate to late-stage capitalism. Climate change is the direct result of our economic system. When you have a growth debt-based system that's based on fossil fuels, everything we do is going to heat up the planet. When you have an economic system where 93 cents ends up in the hands of the one top 1% uh, after the multiplier, by definition, our wealth creation is creating inequality and creating poverty. It's actively doing so. And so unless we have that, that bigger picture structural understanding, we, we then replicate these other mistakes. And, and I often um, go after Tom's shoes, but it's, it's not a personal thing. It's just a good <laughs> emblematic example, right, of this idea that Okay, and it's well-intentioned, right? That we're gonna sell shoes to certain people and every shoe that's sold, we're gonna give away a pair of shoes. And if, if the, the frame of reference is that the problem is just people don't have enough, then we end up with these types of solutions, what, what we refer to as solutionism. And each new solutionist ideal creates a whole host of concomitant effects and consequences in its wake that we then have to clean up the mess of, and so on and so on. And, and this is the kind of problem solution mindset of, of capitalism and the dominant logic that we're, we're all enmeshed in. And so paradox is the appropriate starting place uh, to, to step back and say, okay, how do we not untangle, but more feel the weaving of, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Lynn, you have something to add on? Maybe just a couple of different paradoxes that we sit with. Um, and one is recognizing that as we go through the book, Elnor and I offer kind of our subjective view of what some transition pathways might be. And we recognize the paradox of pronouncement or even gesturing to anything in the material phenomenological world being also incongruent with this notion of what we're speaking to of the beyond and into the animate reality. So we recognize the limitations of what we can see and what we're pointing to at the same time as not letting that keep us in some sort of stagnation and not actually in the paradox of what we would call paradox of pronouncement, language or um, a recognition of form and matter. And the other thing that the huge paradox of the entire book is, of course, the paradox of what we're even naming a quote-unquote post-capitalist philanthropy. Um, and we're offering that perhaps while the, the 
the currency, the dollar, the pound, the euro, whatever it is, while it still has value and we have this temporal time dimension that we don't actually know how long it is, but the, the occidental gaze and the Western way of living, can we embrace the paradox that we're all caught in checkmate? We all went to the store to buy goods and services. We're here on Zoom. We're using all sorts of lithium. We're using all sorts of things that the capital system gave to be in this dialogue and conversation. In the same way, can we look at the, the wealth holders and these philanthropic institutions and others and offer that while this has value to actually support transitions into what we would invoke as called post-capitalist realities or systems that are rooted in life-centric reciprocity rather than systems that are rooted in continuation of dominion over that comes back to the Abrahamic traditions and ways of gazing at domination and exploitation and thingifying peoples and lands and resources um, through that very link. So we're embracing that paradox as well. Maybe it's worth just saying something about post-capitalism for a second. Um because it's it's on the table, right? Uh, and and paradox is on the table. So by by post capitalism, we're we're not saying that there's going to be another ism after capitalism. And and we we, we kind of labor this quite a bit uh, at the beginning of the book, but rather that the way um, postmodernists talk about modernism, right, the post is uh, informed by. So part of what we're saying is that whatever comes next has to be informed by and steeped in the understanding of the existing system. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ways we we, we think about post-capitalism. Um, there's a line that we use in the book, and I, I may get it wrong, so you can correct me then, but it's something like, um, if you don't have a critique of capitalist modernity, you are contextually irrelevant. But if all you have is a critique, you're spiritually and creatively impoverished. Mm -hmm. So the critique is not the the end place, but it's the entry into something else. Like we have to understand the full light and the full shadow of the existing system and its existing structure in order to build something new. Yeah. And by something new, we're also referring to new ancient emerging. You know, it's not new in a temporal sense. Mm -hmm. And that these realities already exist and they can simultaneously exist in multiple temporalities. Mm -hmm. Indigenous cultures that have been resisting uh, the onslaught of capitalism are in their own way living post-capitalist realities. And so it's really informed by, by values. And so we look at the existing system and we say, uh, what's the source code of this thing? What is the logic of this thing? And it's, it, it's quite easy to figure out. You don't need to be an economist or political philosopher. Right? You just look around this and you're like, okay, it's short-termist, greedy, extractionist, commodifying, life-destroying. So how do we build systems outside of that? that are based on generosity, cooperation, altruism, solidarity with all life, interdependence, interbeing. And, and that's the starting place. And not necessarily at a superstructure level. We're not trying to create the new ism. It can be informed by these other isms, like eco-socialism and feminism and post-anthropocentrism and post-humanism and these things. But rather, it's a values-based approach to how we live and create and die well while acknowledging we live in the midst of the desert of late stage capitalism. Mm. Yeah, I, I so great that um, I keep seeing the parallel with the spiritual journey, you know, kind of the capitalism, if I have to make a brushstroke equation, it's like the ego individual self-centered perpetuates its own um, um, separate separateness yeah, own growth, and, separate. and the spiritual journey is to understand how the ego keeps perpetuating itself and slowly dismantle and i i i can't help but hear you doing exactly the same as in a way capitalism and capital does represent the ego in that we have accepted and have glorified as the center of life in our modern society. So I just wonder if you can speak about some of the internalized um, values of capitalism that we might all carry and like even what is behind accumulation of capital. If you could 
contemplate a little bit with us on that. Uh, and I just want to say, uh, we will have time for questions. And this is just the beginning of our conversation. So I know we're, there's some technical questions that people have in the audience. We will have time for that. Just, uh, yeah, we're getting there. Lynn, the baton is in your hand, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you spoke that, Zaya, I just can't help but just reflect on the fractal nature of what is so within, so without. And part of what we recognize that, that this is an inner journey and the way that that inner journey is reflected in the outer journey. And there is in some way no separate self. In fact, the very notion of ego, as what you said, of the parallel journey um, with capitalism, the what comes up in neoliberalism is an identification with the individual, the whole way that we perceive the world, that we are separate, the way that I can look at this table around me and, and with my gaze, I can thingify the glasses and I can almost like try to grasp them for whatever my needs are rather than actually being in a, in a relationship with what is or see the sets of relationships that even brought these glasses into being. I'm so conditioned through the, the capitalist, um, I mean, there are people that talk about this as being the dominant culture over 500 or thousands of years. And so we don't want to necessarily locate what brought this, you know, be precise, but we know there was very intentional work done a thousand to 500 years to, to, to bring us into a sense that we are separate selves and the obsession with the material, the, um, the obsession with comfort, I would dare say, is for all of us to reckon with in these times. You know, when I notice that um, within myself, if, if I start to feel a level of anxiety or attachment to do I have enough, whether it's do I have enough food or water, it immediately moves me into a scarcity mindset. This is exactly the logic of capitalism and exactly the spiritual path to um, to untangle within ourselves. And I would say within this piece of whether you're looking at foundations or other, but there's a deep thought form around entitlement. We are entitled to an organizational existence or we entitled to our bank account or we are entitled to our endowment. We are entitled to the way of life that we have seen it. We are entitled to own land. We are entitled to have certainty in these times. And all of this is inextricably linked both to the outer, the superstructure that we're calling neoliberalism or late stage capitalism and the inner, the self-centeredness of the, the spiritual journey. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe the kind of context on that of, of Okay, so this this inner outer mirroring that's happening, why why does it require critique? And there, there's this line from the Vedas uh, where it says, "If you do not know you're in the Kali Yuga, you're of no use to the Kali Yuga." Right? If you don't know you're in the Dark Ages, you're of no use to that period in history in which you incarnated. And so, to to really understand the the oxygen with which we breathe which we can describe as neoliberalism or capitalist modernity. I, I like the frame of capitalist modernity because it's not just the political economic system of capitalism, it's also modernity as the, the kind of cultural epoch that we're in. And, you know, scientists will, will prefer the term the Anthropocene as this as the sort of current period in time. And, and so the, in some ways, the starting place is like, what is this culture in which we've been enmeshed? And our spiritual journey is not absent of the context. This is what we've learned from the last 30 years of social science, that we are highly contextual beings. The, the modern neoliberal trope is that, and, and this comes from enlightenment uh, onwards, is that human beings are highly selfish, competitive, hierarchical, and we, we need these structures in order to survive. Right? The, the base unit of our understanding of how to organize society and culture is, is through the individual. And, and actually what we're learning is that human beings are highly contextual, that if, if we're put in certain positions that uh, we can do almost anything, 
I, I think of the Stanley Milgram experiments, you know, where someone in a white lab coat asks someone to, um, the doctor, the purported doctor asks someone to shock someone to the point of death. And they've been told, you know, if they pass this point of the knob, it's, you could kill that person. And because a, uh, an authority figure tells them to do that, they, they do it most of the time. And so, so part of the, the inquiry is well, how do we structure the world? How do we create political economies that bring out the best aspects of humanity? We were hunter gatherers for 99% of human history. We were living in small cooperative bands. Most hunter gatherer societies were matriarchal. But when we were hunter gatherers, for example, 80% um, of our calories came from gathering. Hunting played a secondary role. And, and we're not saying we were, let's go back to the Paleolithic or, or pre-Neolithic times, but how do we synthesize and incorporate the best aspects of pre-modern, modern, post-modern post into rethinking the very structures that are, are, are I'm not going to say preventing, but let's say co-creating our, the ability for consciousness to evolve. And, and this is where non-dualism and a non-dualistic approach and capitalism are so interlinked. The, the, this sort of new age idea that you can, you can achieve enlightenment as an individual task is, has sort of stemmed from a neoliberal approach. That, that it's a form of spiritual narcissism. That somehow we're going to achieve individual enlightenment when we live in a structure where there's uh, suffering and destruction and species extinction and, and all of this madness that we're all entangled in, that we're all complicit in all around this. And, um, and, and that's sort of at the heart of this. So in some ways, even our spiritual understanding, even our conceptions of consciousness, even our conceptions of non-duality are completely informed by the context of capitalist modernity. And how could it be otherwise? Yeah, because they, they, they sprout from it. I mean, we, we, you know, those are, yeah, our, our desire, our, spirit, our spirituality is, this, is an offspring of our belief. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I, I love that because that goes also to the heart of spiritual journeys, like the very notion of non-duality says there is no individual and then yet we are on individual path of awakening. And the yeah. same thing is anytime we um, extract capital from the relation, you know, make it into a thing that is separate from everything else, um, there it is. That's what led us to the checkmate situation Lynn, that you are saying we are in and that's again the paradox yes we are there and yet uh the inquiry continues and and my next question would be like why liberate the capital and instead of hospice it <laughs> maybe i can start there and say um in some ways the the liberation is the hospicing you know, and that's a, a kind of foreshadowing of, of the book. And also to say, like, you know, there's this new age trope that money is energy. Right? Money is just energy, right? We've all we've all heard this. And, and and part of what we're saying about becoming contextually sensitive is to realize it's also so much more than that. It, it, it also represents uh, the 500 year head start that Western Europeans received from inventing fiat debt based currency it re represents the growth that is required which directly is related to the destruction of the planet it represents the colonialism and imperialism and genocide and pillage and rape that was required to acquire that capital right and so all of this shadow is embedded within this this thought form of money and non-dualistically it's also right now the only way we have at at a at a at a globalized level, let's say, to organize labor, right? So I may want someone here in our local community to help me plant trees. They're not going to accept yucca or sweet potato. They may uh, in 10 years or 20 years when, you know, post the, the collapse of, of debt-based currency. But right now it's a way to organize labor. And so part of our inquiry is how do we use capital to build post-capitalist infrastructure? How do we use capital to build land, water, 
energy sovereignty, medicine, educational, cultural sovereignty at a localized bioregional level. There's a very short period of time, and you know who knows what, what that is. Some people will say five years, some people say ten, some maybe twenty is the upper bound of uh, the our kind of modern way of living. That, of course, we cannot have exponential growth on a finite planet, and, and that's exactly what's required right now. When we hear this idea of World Bank and IMF and others say that global economy has to grow at three percent. We've all heard this, right? We get into stagflation or deflation uh, or recession if we don't. And what that actually means is a doubling of the global economy every 20 years, every 24 years, to be precise. And we know, and it's the first time economists and ecologists agree on this, there will not be another doubling of the global economy. We've crossed six of the nine planetary bounds. We're reaching material limits on all the key inputs to industrial capitalism from lithium to cobalt to, you know, iron, you name it, gold, silver, et cetera. And, and so as we're reaching these upper bound limits, we need to start thinking about what infrastructure do we want to build and how do we build local resilient economies and communities before and probably in parallel to cascading collapses. And, and so capital can play a role in that. And we're all enmeshed in that, right? At this point in time, capital is mediating every aspect of our lives, right? There's no aspect of our lives that is not mediated by capital. Where you grew up, what you do for spare time, who your neighbors are, what your parents did for a living, what you're wearing right now, what food you're eating, if you're eating food, all of it is mediated by capital. And, and so part of what we're saying is that there's spiritual and karmic implications to being a money hoarder at the end of time. And there's spiritual and karmic implications for how we use capital in this transition period. And, and that's sort of what we're, we're, we're gesturing towards without any sense of what the right answer is, but uh, more of a call of let's be aware of the consequences of our actions. Hmm. Anything I would just add to, to that. Zaya, your question was about why not, you know, why liberate, why not hospice? And I was thinking about there's a foundation that we have been um, entangled with and their decision has been to hospice their, the foundation itself, meaning over a set period of time, give away the endowment, the grant making, everything. And in that way, actually hospice the very notion of um, philanthropy and, and what their role is. And it brings up a whole lot of questions, everything from people's livelihoods to the work that they're supporting in the world and where are those organizations going to be supported when that foundation that that for is a really like good one in that sense, like in good relations and giving in a very respectful way and not powering over. And yet um, what Elnor was speaking to of the post-capitalist infrastructure, there's a deep peace in what we're invoking of the, the spiritual and the ontological to listen, to take it as not just there is the right way because the energy of righteousness sneaks in there, but there is the way for, for if you really take that this is the world's collective endowment and we are truly in service not from the energy of martyrdom or the white savior, but we're really in service in a, in a relationally based reciprocal exchange, then there may be those that are listening for hospicing the, the notion itself. And as Alnor said in the beginning, um, those ideas are inextricably linked. And I've been reflecting on this watching where I am in a place where extreme amount of water flows. And I'm aware of what I've seen, one of the mistakes that I've seen in, in philanthropy being, okay, so this is the thing that we need to do. So then all the money rushes in one direction. And it's in the same way that when a flash flood comes in and it's again, not done in a relationally based. So every time I listen into what is liberation of wealth, it's coming back into right relationship. It's tending to arrest, it has a restorative lens on it to recognize where we've been out of relationship. And there's historical harms that have been done and recognizing that my healing and the healing of those peoples and lands are inextricably linked and bound up with one another. But if I'm coming from the energy of um, guilt or shame or blame, I'm just flooding that into that, the river flowing in that way again. 
So um, if you go on to the click around on the website where we have the book, you'll see this five element mandala that we came up with um, as, again, our subjective view of looking at some transition pathways. And Elnor was speaking about the, the earth element, the post-capitalist infrastructure that is in this material manifestation. And there's other things of how we think about liberation of capital um, and hospicing the very notion. It's the ever ongoing practice of what does it mean to be in right relationship? What does it mean to be in solidarity with, as we speak of, with indigenous peoples? That's not something as me as a white woman, I can just assert and that it holds true. This is a very deep undoing, uh, a undoing of my occidental gaze of the very, it's a de-schooling process that I have to be committed to not just in the phenomenological world, but in a spiritual realm of where my ego wants to get it right, but to find how I'm opening myself up to other ways of being and knowing and seeing that then we can listen for what does need to be hospiced, what does need to create kind of a transition pathway for something else to come through. Yeah, beautiful. Maybe we can just touch, and you so beautifully speak about that in the book, uh, the problem with solutions, you know, because it's so quick to say, okay, clearly this is not working. Let's talk about the solution. And let this, here, the solution is the post-capitalist world. Um, so maybe you can just uh, describe the notion with which you're stepping into that or inviting a different worldview without claiming that that's a solution. Elnor, um, I have the impulse to, while you speak about that, to just show the onto shift. Is that something that, yeah? Sure, if you want, yeah. Put it up. Yes. So while Lynn's doing that, maybe I'll, I'll just say, so a lot of the, the discussion hinges on this idea of, of ontology. And, um, Ontology is just, you know, a philosophy's fancy word for saying how we perceive the world. Onto comes from uh, the, the, the Latin to see, right? And so the, the, the kind of, one of the core arguments is the, the manner by which we see and relate to the world and our place in the world is more important than solutionism. That... The solutions themselves, quote unquote solutions, are determined by our ontological gaze. And so I'll, uh, I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, so if our worldview is, let's say the dominant culture worldview, to speak in generalizations, it's separatist and individualistic, it's materialist, it's rationalist, and it's anthropocentric. Okay, I'll just take those, those the, the, the four aspects. So the human is at the center, the individual is at the center of humanity, that we are separate from nature and the rest of the world, and that we can rationally understand our place in the world and the separation of these constituent parts through our mind. Mm -hmm. right? We reduce the entire world into the atom, and then the atom into the proton and the neutron and the electron, and, and now with quantum physics, maybe quarks and photons, what have you. But now we have the theory of everything, right? That's what science is reaching for, this grand unified theory. And, and that hubris and that arrogance literally determines the way we walk in the world. And so what we end up doing is we replicate the logic of this system by every act, no matter how well-intentioned it is. Um, in the chat box, someone mentioned the idea of empathy. Even our empathy is mediated by this. Hmm. How we see another being in, let's say, a different perspective. Um, I come from a Sufi uh, uh, lineage. And uh, I'm, so when I think of mystical traditions or many indigenous cultures hold similar views, when we go to a, uh, let's say, what we call like, it's it's more plural, it's ontological shifts. Um where where it's interconnected, relational, animistic, quantum, queer, then instead of this table being uh, uh, this inanimate dead piece of wood that I am entitled to manipulate in whatever way I want, and it's here for my service and pleasure because I paid for it, 
I'm therefore entitled to it, right? I own it. To this is kin. This table is kin. It's uh, a relational living being that has sacrificed its life to be in relationship to me in this particular way. And you know, even science, in 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 many ways, is sort of moving towards these understandings, right? In the in the field of consciousness, panpsychism is having this huge resurgence. Um, a lot of what we're learning about quantum entanglement, uh, which is one of the most validated scientific theories, shows this to be true. And th these sort of ontological shifts create a totally different dynamic relational field with the world. And, and we're not saying that it's um, you can just turn the key and you can go from uh, materialism to animism or rationalism to relationalism. That it requires practice. In our culture, th these are atrophied muscles. These are atrophied psychic skills. These are atrophied uh, social, cultural, spiritual skills. But that they can be strengthened through the intention and the will and the practice of, of other ways of knowing and being. Not to denounce rationalism or say, it's just rationalism must have its place in the pantheon of other ways of knowing and being. It's one way to sense the world. It's not the pinnacle. And, and, and this has been really the, the, the root of the Enlightenment project and scientism and, and the theology that has come around science. And the way I see this is like science is the floor of understanding as opposed to the ceiling of understanding. You know, it's one way that we can agree on shared consensus reality, where we can have shared language around ontology, but it's not the only way to see the world. And because we're in this uh, enlightenment, rationalist, materialist worldview, it's it affects everything we do. And, and just to root it back to money, as soon as we are in this belief that um, people, rich people have earned their money and therefore deserve to make these decisions, we are replicating the culture of trauma and separation at every moment, even if we think we're doing something philanthropic for the love of humanity is what that means. But actually what we're doing is we're reifying the separation between you and I and the belief that because I won some perverse rigged lottery, that my deservedness then puts me in a position where I can uh, help shift your life without ever addressing the structure of the thing that got us here in the first place. And, and, and we do it every day, right? We walk into a coffee shop and uh, I feel entitled to treat the barista or whoever a certain way. And my rationalization is, well, they're getting paid for their work without any sense of, do they want to be doing this work? What is the system that put them here? What was the, the you know, the, the trauma, the ancestral burden, the life circumstances that put this person in this context? We, we walk around as neoliberal zombies in the control and the extraction and the mediation of the world. And it literally blocks our uh, mystical, spiritual capabilities of being in relationship with the animistic world and the more than human world. Mm. Yes. Lynn, do you have anything to add? or Maybe just to, to add that the, the entire paradigm of problem and solution is itself born out of the same logics that yes. we're speaking to and so deeply conditioned um, I worked for a very long time on schooling and, and the very way that we are taught to see component parts in relationship to one another and see problem solution. It's so deeply interwoven to any of the isms or the archies that you want to speak to. And so what we're offering is that um, perhaps it's for us to go and um, quiet and be in contemplation with the river, with the more than human realm and, and listen from that place. Because if we continue to do the problem solution logic, it's only what I can see through my ontology is even possibilities. And so in this way, Elnor and I also are, are have been in an ongoing, like it's not for us to point exactly to who are the peoples or the projects or the things to, to as much as we want to uplift all the great work in the world, because it falls back into that problem and solution logic that somehow we know or we're the arbiters or the curators of what the right way to go about this is. 
And so we're really trying to be in the ongoing praxis of, of what it is to decondition ourselves and to listen, cultivate you know, peripheral vision and other ways of being and knowing um, and get out of the entrapment. And what Elnor was gesturing to is within um, rationality is we're kind of invoking trans-rational, trans, like recognizing there are many approaches to, to understanding and seeing. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it for there because there's many questions. Yeah. Know. yeah. No, that, that's such a beautiful invitation. I'm I'm constantly confronted with my own desire to simplify the reality to digestible pieces so I can grasp it, understand, control. And that goes so deep. And uh, I just love that in your approach, you're inviting to kind of break that linearity of cause and effect and, and problem solution, also linearity of time. I love the term you're using. Um, what is it? Ancient, modern, emergent technologies. Uh, maybe you can touch on that little yeah. bit, because again, my you know, often we go by. Oh, let's just go back to what was before capitalism. You know, it's only five hundred years, so we can remember what was before that. And yet, uh, the time doesn't move that way. So maybe you can also touch on the spiral logic approach that you are offering. Work. Maybe Where just the, the place yeah. to begin and um, is that if we set up, you know, old versus new, we're back into binary logics. We're back into good versus bad. Old is bad, new is good. And there's just so many things that we can all recognize. And um, and it's an ongoing process to recognize the, the thought forms and the biases that we're all holding in our gaze, in our bodies, in our etheric fields and in the worlds around us. So we invoke this kind of new ancient emerging, recognizing that we are in a co-creative dynamic process. And in a way, it's us within a Western tradition um, and the consequences of that that have separated ourselves out or perceived our separation out with the continuum of life and death. There's many indigenous cosmologies and indigenous sciences that recognize this continuum of life. And so we look at how do we find right relationship with life force? Not again as a solution, but to dance with the, the cosmos, to dance with the what is emerging, what is co-creative, and also not to um, ignore what the ancient wisdoms are. And in a way, Elnor speaks in a lot about the ancestral lineage. And I feel this call also to listening to something else that's coming through the cracks and the fissures that we haven't yet recognized. And um, maybe I'll leave it there and, and see what Elnor wants to say about that one. And also the, the way that we're kind of invoking some of the, the, the webs of relationships and entanglements with what we're calling the spiral logic. Yeah, yeah I know I'm also sensitive about time that um, we want to open up discussion in a few minutes. So. Um, Maybe the only thing I, I add in this is that um, Lynn talked about the binaries versus old versus new, and and also that you know even the the romanticization of other ways of knowing and being. It, it, it's not to say that there is a way, right? That that there'll even be some perfect synthesis of bringing back the best of uh, indigenous wisdom with the you know western technique or what have you it, it's it's more acknowledging the messiness of the entanglement that we are in that that neoliberalism and late stage capitalism and capitalist modernity these are not things outside of us right Th these are consciousness producing entities that have co-constituted who we are as a species as individual beings and they're 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 iterative and they're discursive but they're also self-reflexive and interdependent. That, that we have the ability through deeper refinement and uh, more contextual sensitivity to, to find, as Lynn says, the cracks and the fissures and the borderlands and these other places uh, where we may not be able to stop the hegemony and totalitarian nature of, of growth-based capital. You know, I, I recently did 
my, my first trip outside of this land in uh, in a few years. I had the privilege of seeing Maurizio in, in, in the beginning of that, that trip. And uh, I went to New York and a few days before I was leaving, the new iPhone 14 came out. And there was lineups down the street of Apple and the cell phone companies. And, and I was just walking by and I could see that people had the iPhone 13 in their hand, you know, and, and now the iPhone 14 is, and there's this lineup and it, it just like hit me, you know, like a, a kind of like a, a ton of bricks. And I had to go sit in this coffee shop and just like recover from the, the monstrosity that is modernity and, and how our wills and our desires are entangled with that. And I thought that, okay, this culture is going to cut down the last tree, take the last bit of coltan from the Congo, the last bit of lithium from Bolivian mines. And um, how do we do what we need to do and create what must be created, the post-capitalist futures all of us are responsible for, and take into account and integrate you know, 5,000 years of consequence in in our individual bodies, while creating with communities, while being an acceptance of the way the world is. You know, that's part of this new ancient emerging uh, approach. This is part of the, the, the spiral logic that all of these things are happening simultaneously. That by engaging in this process, we're not trying to find some answer or way out or sense of certainty. But, uh, you know, as Donna Haraway would say, like, to stay with the trouble. Hmm. But not for the sake of staying with the trouble, for, for the sake of, let's say it this way, that the desire to shift our ontology and our way of being in relation to the world could lead to the world being in different ontological relationship to us. That, as Karen Barad would say, that the universe will meet us halfway. By us actively saying that we want to step outside of the old story, and be initiated into other stories and other ways of knowing and being, that the living animate world and universe will meet us there, will we'll take our will and our intentionality and our agency in consideration as new ancient emerging pathways open to us. But that possibility also exists, that Gaia herself has her own will and her own intellect. And uh, that I, I try not to say in a place of hope or hopelessness, but if there was any residual of uh, uh, optimism, let's say, it, it would be in her will, in that something else will be created in relationship, in dynamic relationship to how we choose to approach. Wow. <laughs> wow, what a what an incredible invitation to to sit with and contemplate. It's huge. Um yeah, I, I want to shift a little bit. There is something that I remember you saying that we have scenarios of post-apocalyptic, uh, the doom of the world, uh, you know, Mad Max and stuff, but we don't have any scenario in our media, in our story, in our vision of a post-capitalistic society. And that's to me already is an indication of something. I don't know. You have something to say because that sentence I heard you saying somewhere else, or we talk about completely. Like I realized, we, oh we don't have a map. We don't even have a sci-fi that talks about that I can refer to. We we have this as I refer to this five element mandala, and the earth element is at the bottom, and the the top of that that you share it, Lynn. I think, well, if you go to the website, you can see it. Maybe oh. <laughs> you can share it. <laughs> I could share it. Um, but the top of that is the element of air. And this is in response to what, what we're speaking of, of what is this new ancient emerging. And as we were speaking with many people, we realized there was just a sincere dearth of the collective imaginary of, of anything else being possible in a way of, of course, there's, there's so much work that's going on that is in what we would call the transition pathways. And I, I want to like honor that work. And part of it is what Eleanor also spoke to is that there are many who have been already living these values that we're speaking of within the post-capitalism, but in the collective, in the, 
the collective consciousness. We are more, I mean, as the cliche goes, we are more connected and can imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that says something so deeply about the the thwarting of the co-creative possibilities within ourselves. If I would even say the thwarting of life force itself, which is where it leads us into not reifying trauma to get us more adjusted within the world that we live in, but to open up to what is the gift as you are doing films on this, what is the wisdom of, of, of that and in, in coming back into right relationship with life force itself. And um, Elnor and I end the, the book and kind of what came to us as we really sat with this spiral logic and as we sat with what he was speaking of, that Gaia herself may meet us halfway and we were looking at this so within that, what if we see this moment as a deep moment of surrender, a deep moment of letting go of control innerly in our worlds around us? What if we see this moment where we are as a true threshold, an initiatory moment for not just ourselves as separate individuals, but for our webs of relationships and um, in, the, in the human and the more than human realm. And in that way, what is it for us to walk each other into the unknown? That's the deepest spiritual practice of any spiritual tradition is the surrender, the letting go. That's that's you you speaking to the core of it. And it's I, I see also every people in the chat are reflecting. It's like incredible, really, how deeply spiritual this work is it's mind-boggling i would have never imagined that philanthropy could be a doorway to a deep spiritual work like this but everything can be a doorway right every every aspect of, of living points to that thank you honor lynn do you have any final words to weaving and uh, this conversation is just so rich and we can have so many more directions to go and explore but that's i i feel to just honor kairos and chronos time and know where we are in chronos time and with where alnor finished us we we finished the book actually with the myth of inanna and um, the myth of Inanna was one that comes from the Sumerian that had kind of um, mythology, the pantheon. And at the time of the height of civilization, this goddess of earth and heaven went into the descent. And we finished with that myth because we're recognizing that we are in the age of consequences, that we are in the, in the great descent, which we also know through spiritual traditions are also that place where awakenings can happen. And will we make it true to some sort of true or what is that? We don't know. And we, we sit with that, the deep mystery of that, of what are the, the karmic conditions of being in this age of consequence for the ancient, for the future, for the beings that are here. And, um, and just really look forward to continuing to walk with, walk each other home. Beautiful. Thank you, yeah. Stephanie. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Elnor and Lynn, for this rich conversation. I, I hope we can continue. I think there is a lot more here yeah. we can explore together. And um, yeah, uh, anything else? Yes, yeah, uh, my mind is spent and stretched and uh, all contorted and grabbled because <laughs> The implication of this are so huge in every breath we take, in every every move, every step we make, and it's so beautiful to have this uh, attitude. So I'm always I'm touched, and uh, yeah, that's I can only thank you and thank each and every one of you for creating this space and maintaining this space for everybody present at this event. It's, it's an honor to have a community so open to this kind of a conversation. It's such a joy and an honor. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's, there's very few spaces we can have these conversations. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm really grateful to, to both of you, Zaya and Maurizio, to the Sen community. And um, yeah, to everyone who's just been in dialogue and discourse with us because we're also learning as we're 
thinking and feeling and trying to embodying non-dualistic thought and you know embodied cognition and it's practice you know as, as we said we're, we're just in the practice of how do we deconstruct what it is to be born into um, a culture of such deep psychosis and yeah. and all that's required to decondition and disentrain our minds and our hearts and our bodies and it requires community it's really the only way by which we can we can develop these practices absolutely exactly absolutely co-emergence comes from that place yeah yeah and again lean and honor will have their webinar series highly recommend with amazing speakers like bio Kumulafin, vanessa uh, Andreotti. Uh, so please, we'll post a link, have a look. Also, their book is an incredibly beautiful object. So just, uh, I highly recommend you to experience it. There is an experience in that book. It's not just words. Yeah. <laughs> it goes way beyond the words. And we also have two, do you remember? Yes, we have uh, another program we wanted to invite you coming up November 6th. There are three sessions with Ia Afo. Mm -hmm. uh, deepening our collective uh, resilience, not resistance, resilience. resilience. <laughs> uh, and she's uh, um, she speaks of uh, historical trauma. So that will be also a very deeply informative uh, webinar of three sessions. So you're welcome to join. Thank you, Elnor and Lynn. And to the next opportunity so in person or via Zoom. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. All. Dear, dear community, dear my Zaya Maurizio and all. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening to The Sounds of Sand. And we invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content available exclusively to SAN members, and you can get in touch with us by emailing us at podcast at scienceandnonduality.com. We would love it if you could leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, five stars is always appreciated. And share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.